The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Hi everyone, welcome to the forum today. My name's Craig Josling. Our speaker today is Ian Powell. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar about what we're on about, we um, explain the Bible's message and see what the relevance is for city workers. Today we're looking at uh, one of the big questions that many people ask of Christianity and the Bible. Does the God of the Bible advocate violence? Now this is a, a very relevant topic in the current environment. So people are pointing the, the uh, finger at, at people of the Muslim faith but what about Christians? What about the Bible? What does the Bible have to say on this issue? So uh, Ian will speak for 20 minutes and then we'd love for you to ask questions and to make comments. And you can do that three ways. I should get some of the regulars to explain the ways that uh, we collect comments and ask, and ask uh, questions, but I won't but I've certainly got your attention now, haven't I? The first way is to write a question or comment on the slip of paper inside your program. You can text it to me on my phone. The number will be up on the screen in a minute or I've got a roving mic and you can just stick up your hand and ask a question. It's called the forum because we want it to be a two-way communication. We want you guys to contribute to make your comments. Today we're also doing a bit of a census. So you'll see inside your program this communication and comment card, we'd be really happy if everyone who's here could just fill that in and let us know that, that you're here. Every now and then we'd just like to do a bit of a, a census of who's, yeah, of who's coming to our public meetings, so please fill that in. I'm going to read three of the Bible passages that Ian will be referring to today, if you'd like to open up your program. The first is Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53. So it's Jesus speaking to the Apostle Peter. Je then Jesus said to him, Please put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. The next passage there is John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And the next passage there, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 29. Jesus speaking, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, man. Well, as you probably know, these questions have been chosen by the website, askgod.com, etc. And this one has come up a few, a few times, this question of religious violence and the Bible, uh, Christianity. Uh, so if you ask the question that we've got here, does the God of the Bible advocate violence? The answer is... No. That was a short talk, wasn't it? Um, any questions? Now, but 
It's very clear when you ask, you know, is there, does the Bible advocate violence, the use of violence? No. But if you ask a different question, did the God of the Bible ever advocate violence? The answer is yes. He clearly did. Um, then you ask the question, hang on, if God is not advocating violence now, but has at times advocated violence, what's going on? Has God evolved? Has God improved? Has God matured? Or perhaps if you don't believe the Bible is uh, God's book, and that's a position that's probably very popular in our country, you, has the Bible improved? Has, has man's imagining of what God is like got better and more peaceful? Is that what's happened? Um, it's interesting, though, with the question of violence, when I've had some discussions with, with friends of mine who I hold in high regard about this whole question of the present violence in Iraq, etc., and they'll often say, look, the Bible is just as violent as the Koran. It can be misused as much as the Koran can be. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting point. And the point that they'll often take us back to is what we're going to look at, which is the question of the commands of God for the use of violence when Israel entered the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of what is now Israel and Lebanon, that period. And, and they can point to some verses, and we'll look at some of them in a moment. But they're actually mistaken about saying that, the, you know, the Quran's got some violence in it and the Bible's got some violence in it. Actually, and I learned this from a Christian pacifist who was debating with a, an Islamic scholar, there's more violence in the Bible than there is in the Quran. If you want stories of people being killed and slaughtered by the hundreds or sometimes the thousands, apparently, there's much more of that in the Bible than the Quran. Ah, people go, good. See, now we're all, no, 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 let, let me explain. It's, it's only people who don't realize the nature of the two books that would find that shocking. There's pretty well no history in the Quran. There's the brief retelling of stories from the Bible, really um, quickly and briefly and with no detail, uh, some, some of the life of Jesus, etc. But the Quran is simply not a book of history. It's, it's God speaking. It's statement after statement after statement after statement from God. Whereas the Bible is fundamentally a history book. And if you tell the story of any nation, you're going to tell stories of wars. And if you tell the story of a nation honestly, there's going to be horrible moments of brutality, like there is in the history of Australia, right? both before white man got here and after white man got here. There's been lots of murders. There's been lots of rapes. There's been lots of terrible things happen. And the Bible is a history book that covers thousands of years. So there's actually more acts of violence recorded in the Bible than there ever is in the Quran because the Quran is not a history book. Now, if, if you go and look then at the Hadiths, that is the sayings of the Prophet, which are absolutely crucial for Islam, or the earliest biographies written in uh, Ibn Hashim and Ibn Ishaq, etc., all really essential. Then you'll find lots and lots and lots. In fact, you'll find much more bloodshed uh, when you put that all together. But what's going on then with the Bible and violence? Well, at one level it's quite straightforward once you stop and look at it. To record something as happening is not recommending it, is it? So if you go to most of the Jewish museums around the world, there's an enormous amount of material in them on the Holocaust. And some, of, some Jewish people say, we've got to stop majoring on the Holocaust as if that's the most important thing that we've ever done. But you have to record some of it. But of course the Jewish museums are not advocating it, are they? But they're recording it. They're not recommending it. This is what the Bible's often doing. It's simply recording stuff. And often it records it, and it's clearly saying, this is what happens when you turn your back on God. So within 88 verses of the beginning of the Bible, a man, is, a man dies. How does he die? He's murdered. Who kills him? His brother. 
be stupid to say, aha, the Bible advocates me killing my brother next time he's, you know, a bit rude to me. This, but this is the silliness that people do sometimes. They just don't stop and think about it enough. Uh, on the weekend, there was a terrible article by Julia Baird, a great journalist that uh, worked for the ABC and occasionally writes for the Herald, on rape, arguing that ISIS needs to be not just described as a, as a death cult, but a rape cult, because there's an, thousands, as far as we can tell, of women are being attacked in that way. Do you say that Julia Baird is an advocate? You, you, you get what I'm saying. So yes, there's lots of violence in the Bible. The question is why and what's the context? What's happening there? Well, let's have a look at the central case. Then we're going to have a look at the central character. Then we're going to look at the central witness in this whole question of violence. And does can you use the Bible in any sensible way as advocating the ongoing use of violence? No is the answer. But let's have a look at the central test case. If you've read any of the atheistic literature that's come up in the last um, 10 years, um, Dawkins and Hitchens, they make much of this period of history. So let's look at the period of history that they choose to say is representative of the whole story of the Bible, which it isn't, but there's some pretty terrible stuff in it. Let's have a look. It troubles some Christians and it troubles some atheists and it troubles people who are just looking. So let's have a look at it. Uh, You've got a thousand texts, I'm sorry there. Uh, You thought you were going to relax at lunchtime. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, second passage down. This is, Deuteronomy is Moses' last great speech to the people before he dies. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter. Let's have a look at what he says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. That's pretty chilling, isn't it, for God to say, there's a bunch of people you ought to show no mercy to. Joshua 6, this is Josh, the story of Joshua, who takes over from Moses and actually leads the military campaign by which they do remove those other nations. Here's what it said. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you, sh- you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall v- devote them to complete destruction. Then there's the whole list of the peoples again. And then Deuteronomy 2, referencing the same period of history, verse 34, we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women and children. We left no survivors. Now that is a terrible and chilling and disturbing report of what happened in that war. And what are we to make of it? Well, I think the, the crucial thing is with, with the Bible, because it's a history... It's got a clear point that it starts. It's got a clear direction that's going. The story begins, as it were, in Genesis 1, but really the the, the thing that forms the story is actually in Genesis 12, when God takes Abram, gives him three promises, that he would give him children, although he was 75 and childless, would give him land and would give him blessing and make him a blessing to all the nations. Those three promises are what drive the entire Bible. And what happens is that they promise this land, and this is the point when God is giving them the land. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, and there's a reason why God didn't give it to Abraham then, which we'll come to. But this story here is where it's one moment in history when they go in. And there's all sorts of things that indicate to us in the text quite clearly uh, that it's very specific. It's a single moment in time. So look at verse um, Deuteronomy 7, the first verse. When the Lord your God brings you, that's when you're to show no mercy. 
entered the land. They gives, it gets the specific timing, the specific land, the specific nations that they're, in, they're commanded by God to kill. They're not given the option to kill. They are commanded by God to wipe them out. It's a terrible, it's a terrible moment in history. But God gives the command to that group of Israelites in taking that bit of land with those people to wipe them out. There is nothing in the text that says this is an enduring sort of command or theme music that any time the Jews feel like having a war with anyone, they can slaughter them. That would be rubbish. In fact, there's very clear commands in Deuteronomy 12 for how they're to have other wars apart from this one. There are three sorts of wars that the Bible records. You can see this in in the book of Judges where you move progressively through the three. There's the wars where they take the land that God has commanded them. There's the wars where they fight to protect themselves from other invaders, which happens to any nation. They get invaded by big bullies next door to them. And there's instructions and histories of that. And there's also, sadly, the story in Israel of civil wars where they fight amongst themselves. And some of the worst bloodshed happens in contradiction to everything God has said, but they do it to each other, and it's recorded for us. So what's going on here? What we have here is a very clear distinction between just generalised violence and the call to God to act against these people at that time. Now, why? It's still troubling that God would say to do this because the picture you get of God throughout the Old and New Testament before Jesus Jesus and after is that God is a faithful God who keeps his promises, which is one of the marks of God. Genesis 12, those promises control the entire Bible right to the last chapter, still controlling God's interaction with history now. The promises, he keeps his promises, God. Secondly, he's quick to forgive. He loves to show mercy. That's his instinctive response. The Bible says again and again, God is quick to forgive and he is slow to become angry. It's important to see that God is slow to become angry, quick to forgive, but he does become angry. There are things that make God angry and I am delighted that that's the case, that God is not indifferent to the horrors that happen on this planet. He does get angry, but he's slow to become angry. And he is repeatedly from the first book of the Bible right through to the last book, and particularly the teaching of Jesus, he is a judge. He is your judge. He is the judge of cultures. He is the judge of cities. He is the judge of of individuals. And he is a holy and good judge. But when he judges, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, when he judges to punish, it's actually called God's alien work. That is, it's, it's kind of not his instinctive work when he punishes, but punish he does and he will. Uh, this is not because God is cranky in the Old Testament and becomes nice in the New Testament. It's not that silliness. That part is quite consistent. And let me read you from Deuteronomy 9, perhaps one of the most helpful parts in this. This is at the top of the right-hand side. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Moses speaking again. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to take possession of this land. When it is because, why does God give them the land? Why does he thrust them out? It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. So it's it's very important here to see... What is God doing through Israel when they take the land? They are acting as God's judgment on those seven little nations that were there. So it's because of their wickedness. And God's saying, don't think that because I'm using to drive them out that you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. 
the Bible saying, you're all bad guys here. Because you know, he says to himself, you're an unrighteous bunch. The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is, you know, really could be called anti-Semitic. The way it pictures the Jews is, is never, never very complimentary. So Moses, or God through Moses, saying, don't think that they're wicked and you're good, but I'm using you to drive them out because of their wickedness. Uh, later on, God will speak of Assyria, who are hor- the, the Assyrians are the guys who worked out crucifixion. The Romans just perfected it. The Assyrians were a brutal bunch, but they're used by God. He used this phrase, they are the rod of my anger. Who does God use the rod of his anger against? Israel. And what God will sometimes use one nation against another nation to punish them, to judge them, to bring that civilization to an end. And he's decided that this civilization of the Amorites, etc., is coming to an end. Why does God not give Abraham the land? Why does Abraham move to the land but move about owning just one small block of land which he could bury his wife in? That's all he had. Why does God not give them the land then? Why do they have to wait for four or 500 years? Well, go back to Genesis um, 15, the bottom of this page. Sorry to be bouncing around so many texts. This is very important. Love to read the whole of Genesis 15, can't. Let's just go to the last verse. He's he's telling that God is prophesying what's going to happen to Abraham's descendants, that they're going to become slaves and they're going to be there for 400 years, etc. Then he says this, and then they're going to come back. They shall come back here in the fourth generation... For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't this interesting? Right back at the beginning, God says, why does God not give the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land of Israel, to Abraham then? Because it would not have been just of God to give it then. At that point, the Amorites did not deserve to lose their lease, as it were, on the land. But they'd been not paying their rent and they'd been wrecking the place for long enough that actually in Leviticus it speaks of God throwing them out but also speaks of the land vomiting them out, that they were such a revolting people that the pictures of the land say, But then God says, but if you learn to live like them, the land will vomit you out. This is God acting in justice, one of the three great characteristics of the God of the Bible. It's ugly when you see him come to blows with them, but it's good, it's right. Uh, in Leviticus 18, where it talks of the land vomiting, it tells some of the things they did. The men were having sex with animals. The women were having sex with animals. It's gross, isn't it? The Bible is not a kid's book at that point. And they were offering their children as sacrifices. And we've got the archaeological remains of this. This was a society that slaughtered its children in its worship. We've dug up the remains of children used, slaughtered as the base of buildings. They were a horrible culture. And God has said, enough. And how does he get rid of them? He removes them through his people. So it's a strong passage, but it's actually good. It's God acting in a way that is scary when it's directed at you. But God actually cares about cultures that become utterly ruthless and murderous. And that's why those people are wiped out at that moment of history. We can come back to it. But there's no statement for God that Israel can just go slaughtering as many people as they like. No, 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 no. It's just this one moment, just that one 40-year period. The central character in all this, of course, is God. It's God who is the judge of all the earth. Back in Genesis 18, God has told Abraham, who barely knows God at this point, that he's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham has relatives who live in the cities. So he begins to argue with God. And and this beautiful expression he uses, he says this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And then he begins to argue with God. He's worried that God maybe isn't doing the right thing. And they have this dialogue you can read in in, in um, Genesis 18, as Abraham is learning how God will do things and whether or not God will be righteous. 
The crucial thing, I think, for us to learn, it's very hard for us Westerners to learn, is this. When you're thinking about God, the God that Jesus reveals, he's not on trial. You are. He's your judge. He doesn't actually answer to you one little scrap. He made the earth. He owns the earth. He made you. He owns you. He decides what is good and evil. You answer to him. And our accidental sense of, you know, critiquing God is actually just one more part of our sinfulness. But um, the question is, can God be trusted? Yes. He's a just God. He's slow to become angry, but when you see it, it's powerful and it's fearsome. I worked with, uh, at a school, Shaw School, uh, for nine years or so. It was great fun. Uh, not a private school boy myself, but as far as private schools go, it was, it was a pretty good show. But the headmaster there was the finest man, I think one of the finest men I've ever met and ever worked with. The longer I worked with him, the more impressed I got. Normally with me, it's the other way around. Easily impressed at the beginning. Oh, gosh. But this guy was just, he was impressive. Um, but there was a time when I th- he clearly got it wrong. There was a, a boy in, in the um, first 15 rugby team. He was our only attacking back. He was the only guy that could, could make breaks. He'd given a... R- a rollicking speech to the boys on Thursday uh, lunchtime, urging them to come and support us in the, in the game that would sort of make or break the season. And that afternoon, the headmaster suspended him for two weeks from school, which meant he couldn't play rugby, which meant we couldn't possibly win, which meant the boys and the staff, frankly, were pretty annoyed. Not that grown men care about games like rugby, but we were pretty annoyed. And we were pretty sure that the boss was simply mistaken. And that really what had happened was he'd, he'd batted... We knew he'd bullied this kid... Um, and, but the boy had a, a very prominent legal father. I think he was a QC. And the general consensus was the headmaster had been coward into suspending this boy. So I went to see the boss. I appointed myself as the prophet to go and see the king. So I went and saw Mr Grant and he kindly let me see him. And he listened to my case as I went through and said, how, look, it's just wrong and everyone's angry and it seems like a vast overreaction. Anyhow, the boy's a bit of a rat bag in here. Probably needed a good beating. But uh, no, I didn't say that. But... Um, Anyhow, the headmaster listened to me patiently and then he said, Ian, thanks for coming. I, I reminded him, I said, the best of men are but men at best and it looks as if you've made a mistake here. And uh, he basically said, Ian, here's the, I can't tell you all the story about this boy but he is, he's had a long history of, a, of being a bully and he was on his absolute last warning. He understood it, that the next time he, he you know, uses force against a younger boy, he's gone. He said he's lucky in a sense not to be expelled. Uh, and I, and I'm, you know, we talked a bit, and, and, and actually I, it was interesting because I was sure that this fine and good headmaster had simply made a mistake, and it was my job to try and help a Christian brother, even though he's higher in the... But actually, you know, I came away more impressed with the headmaster than before because I don't think anyone in the school community except the boy who was bashed and his father thought that the headmaster had done the right thing. And I think with God it's like this too. We tend to look at this thing and we think, no, 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 this is, this is an overreaction. No, it's not. This is God being just and kind and keeping his promise and the judge of all the earth will do right. There and then is when he does it. But there is no ongoing command. So the last thing to draw attention to is the central witness of Jesus. The place to start, according to Jesus, if you want to understand God, is Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to hear the voice of God, listen to me. And above all, the place to understand God is at the cross, which is a place of violence where Jesus dies, uh, brutally. 
But the main act of violence, in a sense, done against Jesus is by his father. As Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord that he should be bruised as he takes our sin. And when you understand that God in love has allowed this to happen, it's a good and beautiful thing. But Jesus is very clear in the text you heard read that that the use of the sword uh, is just not on in any shape or form for Christians. He said, otherwise my disciples would be fighting for me, said to Pilate. He says to Peter, who tries to protect him, don't, put it away. Um, that's, That's just not the way we do it. So Jesus himself is the one who shows very clearly a number of things. He shows that the sword has no place in the church. When you have a nation as God built with Israel, there's a, there's a need for an army. Etc. But when you're building a worldwide movement, it doesn't have armies. Christians may be in armies. We can talk about that in the question time if you like. Jesus makes it crystal clear how much God loves you by his dying for you. But Jesus actually also makes it crystal clear just how terrible the judgment of God is. In fact, he makes it worse. Jesus says this, Do not fear men who can kill the body. That's what happened to the Canaanites. They were killed. Don't fear men who can kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after death can cast you into hell. Yes, fear him. So Jesus is actually saying the death of the body, what happened to the Canaanites, that's not something to be all that anxious about. But meeting God as your judge on your day of judgment and being cast into hell, Jesus says, fear that one. Jesus affirms the flood that had happened. And the story of the flood and Noah and that is actually a much more terrible story uh, than the story of the conquest of Canaan. There's no way you can look at Jesus and say, nice, sweet God, Old Testament, nasty, bad-tempered God. It's the same God. I love the God of the conquest. Uh, The God of the conquest of of the Canaanites and the command to remove them is the God of the cross. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your worship. He's good. But he's not tame. And he's not answerable to me. Let me finish with the story of the good policeman. You probably know the story of the good policeman. He went off to work one day. He walked along and he saw a bunch of year 12 boys bullying a primary school boy and stealing his iPhone 6. And he said, come on, fellas, cut it out. Give him his phone back. And they said, no, we, we need it. Anyhow, he's richer than us. His daddy can buy him another one. He said, come on, give it back. And they said, no. And he just walked on. Later on that day, he saw the same group of boys beating up an old woman, stealing her purse. This is not a real story, by the way. Beating up an old woman and stealing her money. And he said, hey, fellas, come on, cut it out. And they said, no, what are you going to do about it? He said, really, you shouldn't do it. But I'm the good policeman. Please don't do it. And they said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, stop it, please. Stop it. Be good. It's not nice to be like that. Why would you think that was your grandmother? They said, we don't care. Is that policeman good? He's a dirty, filthy, scumbag policeman, isn't he? His job is the good use of force at that point. That's what God is like. God will sometimes use force, but it's not our job to use force in his name. Time for questions, I hope. Yep, thanks, Ian. So, as I said before, there's three ways you can ask questions. Write them on the slip of paper. I'll collect those up in a minute. You can text questions to my phone up there, or in a minute you can just stick up your hand and I'll bring the mic around. So I'll give you 30 seconds or so perhaps to think about some questions. You also might like to start uh, filling out that communication card inside your program as well. Just to let us know that you are here today. Uh,
if you're on our database already, just if you just give us your name, that'll be fine. But if you're if you haven't given us your contact details before, that would be good so that we can let you know of future talks like this one. I will stay around after this if you'd like to ask further questions. Okay, let's, uh, let's kick it off. Uh, what about violence as self-defence? Is the first word. Yes, I think there's a place for violence in our community, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, let me quote you someone who's quite famous for his stance against violence. Mahatma Gandhi, right? Um, who learnt from Jesus. He had the Sermon on the Mount sewn into the coat he wore most often over his heart. But he, uh, he was the great teacher of non-violence. But here he says this, a society organised or run on a complete acceptance of non-violence would be the purest anarchy. So Mahatma Gandhi, who's rightly famous for his decision not to use violence, said a society simply has to, it can't work on non-violence. It would just be anarchy. So there are times when force is appropriate. That's why we have a police force. Tolstoy, the great Russian Christian, took the view that no Christian should ever be involved in the army, the legal profession, or the police. Now, 99% of Christian thinkers uh, think Tolstoy is simply mistaken, and I think there's good reason to think he is. When soldiers come to Jesus and when soldiers come to John the Baptist, they're not told to stop being soldiers. They are told... Um, they are given correction on how they do their soldiering. So yes, it may be that you use, if, you know, if you're getting robbed or something like that. Where, you, where there's no place at all for violence is when you are being attacked in the, because of your allegiance to Jesus. And as you know, and as history has shown, Christians have almost never used violence to spread Christianity. Everyone rushes off to the Crusades, knowing almost nothing about them on the whole. Um, but the fact that again and again my friends take me back a thousand years to find an example is indicative of how odd it is for Christians to do it. Um, a, brief, a brief comment, then I will be quiet at this. And I, I, I think just in terms of fairness, Jesus, Muhammad. Muhammad killed many men with his own hand and led over 60 different military expeditions. Jesus, none and none. The companions of the prophet, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, the three first caliphates, etc., all of them, magnificent military leaders, drenched in blood, doing good warfare, it was thought. How many of the apostles? None. How many of the, the, the second generation? None. How many of the next generation? None. Right? It's just, it's just when, when Islam is involved in violence, now they describe when there are times it's right to do it in the name of Islam, it's part of the DNA. It's right back in the life and the, and the deeds and the teaching of Muhammad. Surah 8, Surah 9 from the Quran, very clear. Jesus, it's not. It's a, it's a, and even and the violence is in the Old Testament. But look at Israel. Israel was not an imperialistic power. Israel did not spend its time spreading its religion by the sword. There's just that one moment when God says, "You are the, you are to act to remove these people off the planet." So self-defence has got a place. Yeah. Uh, question from the floor. Yeah. Hi, I'm just Hi. going to ask about. Um, the situation in Syria and um, Iraq. So um, if you're one of the families in the areas and IS are asking you to, to move out of the area or be killed, 
and they and you decide to stay and they come to your door and knock on your door and you know they're going to kill you, what would be the Christian's reaction if you know you're going to be killed to either just allow to whatever happened to happen or to, if you had a means to self-defence? Do you think it would be right to self-defence? In the light of what you're saying earlier in your message um, with Jesus going to the cross or on, on this would nearly kill me if this happened to me but I think if you're suffering because of Jesus you never fight um, so when I went to a prayer meeting some months ago for what was happening in Syria and Iraq um, this is one step removed Okay, the guy was saying family in Syria uh, there was mum, dad two little kids and just to cut the story short, the parents said to the kids, they, they, most of the Christians had fled from the area of Syria. They thought they should stay and help this particular family. That's what they had very clear guidance from God. They, they got their kids together and they said, almost certainly in the next few months, someone will knock at our door and they'll, they'll kill your parents or kill us. You'll be asked two questions. And the answer you give is that you do trust Jesus and you do love them, the men who do that. And I don't know what's happened to that family, but I think that's the, that's the Christian response. Fleeing is a perfectly valid response. The Bible doesn't say you have to stay there. Uh, others may then come in to act in defence of those people. And that's the question that all sorts of people are trying to work out. Um, that the, the use... Romans 12, which we didn't read, is the Apostle Paul's teaching. And it's, just, it's a, just a complete echo of Jesus' teaching. But he says, don't take vengeance... Then he quotes the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So the Christians are not to take vengeance. God will. There's no, there's no pretense in the system that God is not, gonna, is not a fierce judge when need be. He is. Um, but the very next chapter, I only learnt this this year, I only just put the two together. Romans 13 talks about government. And it says they carry the sword in order to avenge, the, bring vengeance on the evildoers. So... Government is part of God's way of running a culture, and the government will use force. Uh, that's why, and I think bad government is actually better than no government, which we've seen, a couple of countries we've seen in the last 20 years fall into complete anarchy. That's much worse than Saddam Hussein. Having Saddam Hussein, which, which was a nightmare, is better than having anarchy. So I think you don't use it. You need all the strength in the world to not take up arms to defend your family. But at that point, you leave it with God. And that's what Christians have historically done. That's why we've ceased to exist in quite a few areas. Oh, just on that um, sub, uh, question. Um, so if you're on the train or walking the street in Sydney and a group of people come and attack you, you have, a, as a Christian, you have a right to self-defense. Yes, you may or may not use it. Yes, you have a right. I think you do. I mean, Peter Count and I are walking from a... Peter's the, the you know works with CBF as well. We were walking down the road the other day from one from CBF Legal the other morning and we saw a man shouting. I think he was troubled. Shouting. And we looked down and he was shouting. There was a woman sitting at a bus stop and this guy was sitting right next to her, yelling. He wasn't particularly... So we went and stood next to the woman. Just She was waiting for a bus. When he took a breath, we said, are you, what bus are you waiting for? He said, the 310. And thankfully, it came quickly and she got on. We just said, now, if, if he had got violent towards her, um, we would have used force to stop him. Now, I don't think he was, but we just thought, here's a woman with a man screaming. Now, we just thought we should stand near her. And 
or if he'd attacked Peter. Um, I think I would have felt right to use force, but I think it's it's part of loving. The, I'm sorry to be so long-winded. These things are complicated. People have asked about the Good Samaritan. You know the Good Samaritan story of Jesus tells about a guy who intervenes to love his enemy. What would have happened to the Good Samaritan had come, say, 15 minutes early when the guy was being bashed up? Does Jesus think he should stand back and say, now, when you've bashed him nearly to death, then I'll help? <laughs> I think that's silly. You, you try and stop the bashing. It's actually one of the reasons why the Crusades happened. I'm not a defender of the Crusades. I'm a mad Protestant. And one of the things that Protestant, we began the critique. Well, there was, a, there was a lot of voices, Francis of Assisi, for one, against the Crusades. But one of the reasons people don't realise why the Crusaders went from Europe is because two things were happening. There were three or four things happening. One was all the sacred sites, as they saw it, were being smashed by the ruler of Egypt who'd conquered Palestine. So the, the, all the areas where they thought the tomb of Jesus had been, etc., were being systematically desecrated. And secondly, the, the pilgrims to that area, I'm not a fan, a fan of pilgrimage, were being killed. So the Knights of St. John, and you know, we get the St. John's Ambulance, that started off as an ambulance unit, and they thought, why are we always bandaging people up? Let's form a military wing to defend them. And then in the end, they had the great... My second favourite book is about that, The Great Siege of Malta. So I think there is a place for people using strength to defend people, but you don't do it to defend... You don't do it in the name of God, ever. Not of the true God. Thanks very much, Ian. And that's the end of our Ask God series. And next week we've got Tor Lu, one of the City Bible Forum staff, speaking on the topic, living for the next big thing, a bit of a change of pace. Thanks for coming today. Have a great afternoon. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.